Hey everyone, and welcome to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and autopsy techs, Jess and Alice. This week's episode takes its own spin on a classic 1968 horror movie, and there's so much that we're diving into, and I can't wait to talk about everything with you guys, but let us just say, recording this episode this week has been a struggle. It's been a hot mess, guys, and we're trying so hard to get this to you. We've run into every single problem imaginable, but we wanted to get this episode out, so we're actually re-recording what we had previously done. So this week, we're diving into Crossing Jordan, Season 6, Episode 6, titled Night of the Living Dead. Let's get into it. Before we get into it, just one more comment about how much of a struggle this has been. There was one episode that we recorded where I had food poisoning during it. This has been more of a struggle than that. (laughs) That's not an exaggeration at all. I didn't think it could get worse than having food poisoning during a recording. No, this was the worst. Anyway, now we're going to get into it. So we open this episode to everybody in court, and they're questioning a forensic expert. The forensic expert is the chief, Dr. Macy, and he said that the killer left blood at this crime scene. For the sample, they were able to construct a DNA profile of the man who stabbed the victim to death. But it rained that night of the murder, and the water contamination damaged six alleles in the sample, but seven were left intact. So an allele is just one of two or more alternative forms of a gene that are found in the same place on a chromosome. So that was enough of a sample for them to build a DNA profile. And this profile just happens to match it, the defendants. The likelihood of two people sharing the same seven traits or alleles is about one in 100,000, according to Dr. Macy. I was having a hard time checking this stat, but if any geneticists out there can give us a little bit more in-depth look at if this is true or not, please let us know. So then it's the defense lawyer who goes in for cross-examination on the chief. So cross-examination in simple terms is when the opposing team's counsel gets a chance to question the witness after the witness's own team questions them. And when their own team questions them, that's called direct questioning. Other than the contaminated blood, there was no other forensic evidence to link the defendant to the murder of this young woman. There were no bodily fluids or hairs or fibers. Again, this expert opinion is based solely on the DNA match provided by a heavily damaged blood sample. Based on the 1 in 100,000 odds, that still leaves about 60 people in the Boston area who could potentially match this profile. So seven days later, the jury deliberation is finally over. For count one of aggravated rape, they find the defendant not guilty. For count two, murder in the first degree, they find the defendant not guilty. Everyone in the courtroom and Jordan and all the other docs that are watching on TV are in shock about this verdict. We then cut to Dr. Macy in his office talking to Jordan when he gets a call to go out to a death scene for who? The defendant who just got off trial. Dun, dun, dun. So, sorry, but this is a red flag, and I guess these shows just like to have the main characters in every scene, but usually pathologists and medical examiners won't go to a scene. They care about the cause and manner and mechanism of death and the body, and usually the people who do a scene response are people like deputy coroners, police officers, or forensic units that take care of what's going on at the scene. So AJ, the defendant who just got off, was standing near the valet area waiting for his car after going out to celebrate his win, and then shots were fired at him. Witnesses saw an SUV speed through, so it was probably a drive-by shooting. No one caught the plate number either. EMT response was about four and a half minutes, but the three individuals at the scene were already dead. The dead individuals are AJ, the defendant, his defense attorney, and the attorney's assistant. But then there's a close-up of the attorney laying on the ground, and there's a voiceover that we hear of his thoughts, and he says, 
Why does everybody keep saying that? I'm not dead, which I just immediately was terrified because that's we've talked about this before. It's one of my worst fears is to be trapped in small places. But another one of my worst fears is to be declared dead when I'm not. Again, I'm just terrified thinking about just laying in a body bag alive. No, thank you. Being not dead in a body bag is just, no, shouldn't be happening. So then we cut to the morgue and the body is on the table. And green flag, because the body is actually in a body bag on the table, which that's exactly how it should be. Body bags are essential and I don't understand why these crime shows like avoid using them so often. It's just like the body on the table with a little sheet over them. But this time they actually see the body bags. So the defense attorney is still internally thinking while laying on the autopsy table, and he keeps saying to himself that he needs to try to blink or move his hand so that someone knows he's not dead, but he can't move. The other two bodies are getting trace analysis run on them for the gunshot wounds. But trace, I don't know if that would really help in this instance since they were thought to be shot at a distance. So closer range gunshot wounds will have like gunshot powder residue or um, even contact wounds you'll see like a burn mark from the barrel of the gun you'll also see in like closer range gunshot wounds you'll see this thing called stippling which is the pattern of like the gunshot powder on the person will be like burned into the skin so when you wipe away the gunshot powder there'll still be like a pattern burned into the skin of how the gunshot powder like blasted on them it's very interesting to see but since they thought that they were shot from a distance i don't know how helpful Trace will be. So back in the show, they need to concentrate on ballistics. Ballistics, for anyone that may not know, is the examination of firearm evidence or projectiles like bullets. There are three types of ballistics, interior or when the projectile is within the firearm itself, exterior when the projectile leaves the barrel of the gun, and terminal, which is when the projectile makes impact on a target. So they can't get a match without having the weapon. Lisa Hagens, the woman who AJ was accused of raping and murdering and the whole trial was about, her father owns a 22. so this is where the team is going to start since the father was understandably extremely angry when his daughter's probable murderer and rapist was found not guilty. They are getting a warrant to obtain his gun, but the father isn't giving any help since the morgue workers and investigators didn't help his daughter or her case. So you know how I gave a green flag earlier for the body bag? This is a red flag now. They're about to start the autopsy and the body is just on the metal table. But obviously other morgues probably run differently, so I'm just going off of my own experience, but we usually keep the body in the body bag, and it kind of helps contain any fluids during the autopsy. So we also have a smaller morgue, so it helps not take up as much space when we're doing the autopsy, so we have them on rolling tables when they come in. But there is also a green flag for this scene, because they are working on two cases at once, which we do very often in our morgue, so it's quicker and more efficient. We're also really, really good at our jobs. No brag, but a little bit of brag. So if you're thinking, oh no, working on more than one case at a time, when you get things messed up, no. We have a really great system and everybody that is working in the morgue together, we're like a well-oiled machine. Like everybody knows what job they're doing and how we have to help each other out. And it's, it's really cool to witness, I think. I think we're cool to watch when we're at work. Anyway, back at the show. The one doc or the tech, I'm not exactly sure what his role is, takes out a swab, and I think he swabs the hand as evidence. I'm not really sure. It's not really clear what he swabbed. Uh, But when we have a gunshot case, the bodies that come into the morgue will always have their hands bagged in paper bags to contain any trace, like gunshot evidence. And that's where we would try to collect a sample and send it for testing. So we do that on homicide cases. We'll swab under the nails or even take nail clippings for analysis. Also, the morgue in this show has one of those pull-out wall coolers, which I think I looked up. I believe they're called 
some places call them mortuary cabinets because I'm just fascinated by these things because it seems so inefficient to me and like they only have space for like six bodies and they're so stupid (laughs) they seem so inefficient to me because you can only store a limited number of bodies like I think their wall has space for six bodies if we counted right But I was wondering, like, maybe in their show, they have a bigger cooler somewhere else and they keep the bodies that are going to be examined that day in that cooler because that cooler is like in the autopsy suite. Maybe. But that still seems so efficient. Why wouldn't you just put every body you have in a giant cooler? Maybe the cooler's on the other side of the building and they're like, ugh, gotta walk all the way over there. But like, (laughs) so another thing they had, so their body was on like a metal table that was on a gurney and they had to lift the table to then put it into the pull-out wall cooler, but the only the three at the bottom were, like, table height. The other three were, yeah, like, way higher. So how do you get those up? Gotta lift. So inefficient. Yeah, we would not be able to do that at our morgue, not saying that Jess and I aren't strong, because we are very strong. We do a whole lot of lifting all day, every day. But having to, like, lift that much weight, like, over your head to get them in the cooler, maybe they'd use a lift. We have kind of a lift that helps us if we have to mm-hmm. lift a body higher. But it's that even is such a pain to use. It's so slow. It's slow and bulky. It's slow and bulky. And I always bang it on the door. So there's like a <laughs> chunk of wood missing from one of our doors because it just always hits the corner. It's like a bull in a china shop. You can't help but not hit everything. It's so bad. So yeah, we want to start a petition for TV shows to portray what a, like a walk-in more cooler looks like because I feel like we haven't seen that so far it's always the classic pull out drawers i get it's like aesthetic purposes too it just looks nicer it definitely does look nicer than just like a walk-in cooler i was oh my god wait speaking <laughs> i'm gonna go on a quick little tangent but jess was here that day there was one day we were in the cooler and i think i was in there for by myself for a minute i think you had stepped out and we lost power oh, yeah. in the building and so i was in the this walk-in cooler by myself i was the only living person in that more cooler and i was like right outside the door i wasn't far away yeah jess wasn't far away but it was still enough to spook me and the generator ended up kicking on but of course the generator is super loud when it kicks on so it like i heard this loud groaning from the back of the cooler and i booked it out of the dark and scary that was like the creepiest day we had little we ever i don't know what we were doing we were doing like body inventory or like moving bodies somewhere in the cooler and all the lights were out and we just had like flashlights as our only source of yeah, light because the lights kept going out yeah there was a storm that day and we kept losing like the light in the in the cooler and it was that was the first time we didn't have proper lighting in our morgue it was actually like the movies i really felt like that was the start of a horror movie. I felt like I was in The Walking Dead or like in a Resident Evil video game because we had like little tiny flashlights eventually and you're just walking through this giant cooler with like a little flashlight looking at like toe tags and I was like this is how zombie movies start. This is how I die. We should make a scary movie <laughs> like that. That's that's a good opening for a scary yeah. movie. <laughs> Let me sell that pitch to whoever. Yes. <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan. <laughs> I'll play the dead bodies, too. (laughs) So, back in the show, the two techs lift and put in the attorney who isn't actually dead into one of these drawers in the cooler, and they shut the door, and I fully was freaking out, because tight spaces in me do not get along, and I would 
be so upset. It's also, it's unclear how long he was left in the cooler. Right? I, that's, the, throughout the whole episode when he was just sitting in there, I was like, all right, how much time has passed? How much time has he just been sitting in that dark, cold space? Because it's like, what, we keep our cooler around like 35 to 40 degrees between that. Mm-hmm. He's just laying there. That's really cold just to be laying there for hours. I think he was just, he was fully dressed still, but he wasn't in the body bag anymore. He was simply just laying on the metal table. That's right. That's right. But those metal tables get really, really cold when they're in 35 degree weather. Yeah. Nope. Too cold. All right. So the office manager comes into the chief's office and goes over some things with him. She updated her about AJ's mother. Another body is being shipped back to California and there is no next of kin yet for the attorney. I think that from what I can tell from, like, the five seconds she was on screen. I think that she kind of plays the role as their office manager, if I had to guess. And, like, our office manager in our office, she's amazing and we love her. But it's not her job to take care of all of these things. That's really the job of the deputy coroners, like, the investigators. At least it is in our county. So I'm going to give her a red flag for this scene. Jordan started pulling slugs out of the three bodies, and these slugs will be sent to a crime lab for testing and analysis. For those who don't know, a slug is a term that refers to a single projectile loaded into a shotgun shell. Then we cut to the autopsy of AJ that Jordan is conducting, and hold up. Did I just see her take a bullet out with metal forceps? Because that's a red flag, and she should know that as a pathologist. Now I'm questioning, has she ever taken a ballistics course in her life? Or even, like, not even a course, like, just someone telling you, like, hey. Right? Don't use metal on bullet fragments. She should listen to our podcast. (laughs) She could definitely learn a lot, because last time, she was just an angry toddler using a scalpel. Oh, my God. (laughs) Go listen to that episode, guys. It's one of my favorites. (laughs) But, like, number one rule in forensics, and really just common sense, you don't use any metal forceps or any metal on bullets or bullet fragments. You could create a defect that's not really there, and you could disrupt the rifling pattern from the bullet or the bullet fragment and completely mess up the only evidence that you have. But I will give her a green flag for her PPE because she does have on a proper gown and gloves. We love PPE. And you know, we love our PPE. So the investigator on the case comes into the morgue and hands Jordan a file from a photographer who was there the night of the shooting. They haven't gotten the girl's father's gun yet, but at this point, that gun won't help them because the slug pulled from the body is useless for matching. The slug hit a rib, then lodged itself into the vertebrae, or the spine, creating a defect in the slug itself, so there's no testable striations since it's too damaged. The other bullets went straight through the bodies and shattered on impact or against the building, leaving the team with only bullet fragments. While Jordan is talking to the investigator, one of the techs is doing the evisceration on the attorney's assistant, and I give him a red flag because although he does have a gown and gloves on, which is great, we love that, he doesn't have a mask or a face shield on to protect his face. I never get why they don't have those in these shows. Because there's so much fluids and spatter and, like, at the very least, wear, like, eye goggles or something. Right. You never know, like, what is going to happen during an autopsy if you get splashed with, like, you pop a cyst. Oh, you have, like, cyst fluid all over. Or, like, blood gets splattered when you're taking, like, the bone saw to the brain. 
why wouldn't you want to protect your face? <laughs> Even like I get it's for the show too, but at least wear a face shield. You can still see their mouths moving when they talk. Right? No, we love our face shields because I've definitely not even noticed sometimes when I'm doing an autopsy and I'll be degowning after and I'll take off my face shield and I'll see like a little spatter of blood like in the corner. And I'm like, oh my God, if I wasn't wearing my face shield, that would have hit me right in the forehead. Yep. There's been so many times where I like I'm taking the bone saw to the head to get like the top of the skull off so we can get the brain out. And the motion of the saw from moving back and forth so fast creates a lot of blood spatter and you're kind of in close there and it definitely will get on your face if you're not wearing a face shield and in your eyes and that's gross definitely don't want that even dexter wears a face shield guys i'm pretty sure he does (laughs) take notes from him maybe not maybe not (laughs) we don't condone serial killing here guys no unless they have proper ppe (laughs) did we have we given Dexter a green flag for PPE ever in any of our Dexter episodes? That'd be funny if we did, but I don't remember. Guys, if you've listened to our past two Dexter episodes, let us know if we gave a green flag for PPE. That would be really, really messed up, but kind of hilarious if we did. Also, the organs that they use for this autopsy, they just look so fake. And they just look like the plastic dummy organs that the props team just covered in fake blood. I have a theory about this. Yeah. So our last episode, she was like an angry toddler with a scalpel. Maybe they just used the really cheap plastic organs because she was ruining all of the nice <laughs> props. With She's either stabbing them. Stabbing them. So they're like, all right, we can't get the expensive ones. She keeps stabbing them. Oh, my gosh. And get the cheap ones from Party City. So they get the file uploaded with the pictures from the night of the shooting, and it looks like the attorney's assistant was shot first. The photographer dove for cover, but kept on taking pictures. He's a real one. He knew he had to get his job done. Like, for real. <laughs> Rent was due. He needed <laughs> He needed his job. He was not messing around. The photographer got a picture of a black SUV. They enlarged the picture and enhanced it to see who's driving, and it is Mr. Hagen, the girl's father who AJ just got off for technically not murdering and doing whatever to her. But the girl's father can't be the shooter because according to like the sequence of the photos the photographer was taking, the shooting was still happening when this picture was taken. So, And he also had both hands on the wheel, so he couldn't have been the shooter. He had both hands on the wheel and his eyes were still straight ahead. He was unbothered by what was happening. He was, you know what? He's Gunshots never hurt him. <laughs> None of my business. <laughs> Definition of unminding my own business. They go back to the first photo and they see a point of light coming from across the street. It's a muzzle flash from the window. Everyone goes back to the scene. There's cops down in the street patrolling and doing traffic control while the other team, the morgue team, is up into the room where the muzzle flash was seen from. AJ made lots of enemies. He drugged and raped several other girls, so there's definitely a long list of people who the shooter could have been, because I'm sure they all have angry fathers too. The fingerprints on the door to the room are smudged, and there's casings all over the place, so the killer might have been an amateur since he didn't clean up before leaving. So casings, or cartridge casings, is a container basically for all of the components that comprise a cartridge. And there's a green flag for them taking pictures of the line of view from the window to where the targets were that night. The building the shooter was in is empty at night, so it's probably an easy escape for him. And they count 10 casings collected from the floor. The one tech notices something by the window. He pulls out his Blue Star spray and sprays it on the cement block by the window. And we've talked about Blue Star before. It's so cool when you see it. And the spray will react to biological samples, like blood in this case. 
And according to Blue Star's website, it will react immediately with blood, even traces of blood, as old as 7,000 years. That's crazy to think about. I know. It was on their Frequently Asked Questions page. I saw that, and I didn't do any deeper diving, but I want to. I want to know where they got a 7,000-year-old blood sample. I've worked with Blue Star before. It's so cool. You spray it, and within a couple seconds, like it just starts to get into this really cool, luminescent blue color. It's, it's literally blue, like in their name. Haha. It reacts within seconds, and it will last anywhere from 30 seconds to 2 minutes, depending on how diluted the blood is. So, like, when I was using it, we were obviously using, like, fake blood. I was doing it out of photography training, but it was really cool. We were doing it on, like, a kitchen counter surface, and I was, like, standing on the kitchen counter to get the right angle for the photo. It was, like, it's so cool seeing the before photo because it looks like nothing's there, and then the after photo... And it's just all lit up blue. I love so that. So if you've never like worked with Blue Star, look up some photos. They have an Instagram page too to check out, and it's really cool. I think you posted a picture from your photography training. I did on our Instagram. So if you guys it's scroll back Instagram. a little bit, you should be able to find it. It's so cool. The picture is so good. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing it because I think you posted it from our Instagram account while you were still at the conference. So, like, I hadn't seen you in a while. And I was like, oh, someone posted on our Instagram page. And I was like, that's such a cool it's picture. Cool. Back in the show, there's blood and skin, most likely from the shooter's elbows from when the rifle was recoiled. It's the killer's DNA that they have just collected. Back at the morgue, they have the bullet fragments from AJ, and they've micro-scanned each one to build a computer-simulated probability matrix to fill in the gaps, and this will help them reconstruct the slug. So, sometimes the terms slug or bullet are used interchangeably. I will because sometimes I get confused as well. But a bullet is a projectile fired through a rifle or a handgun, whereas a slug is a solid projectile fired through a mm -hmm. shotgun barrel. Back in the show, they finally take out the attorney from the cooler and they prep him for autopsy. It feels like he's been in there for hours. I'm imagining, like, hours. I really thought they forgot about him. I would start to think that, too. I just... So this makes me think of... You know those, like, sensory deprivation tanks that people do? People are like, oh, I want to try that. It seems so cool and relaxing. It sounds like my literal nightmare, like, being in, like, a dark. I feel like I wouldn't enjoy it. That's what I was thinking when he, I was just imagining. I was like, he's in a cold, dark box. He can't see anything. He can't move. Does he feel like, am I real? Is anything real? God, <laughs> like, are you there? It's me, Jess. God, are you there? That's where my mind went. I was just freaking out this whole episode. They roll him into the autopsy suite and the investigator on the case is left alone with the body. He has some pent-up anger towards the attorney and takes a 10cc syringe with a needle on it and he stabs the attorney in the foot. This attorney, we know, is still conscious and thinking, but we know that he also can't move, so he doesn't even flinch at this, but he does feel all of the pain associated with the stab and that just hurts me thinking about it. The full syringe, like the full needle was in his foot. Yeah. Macy comes into the autopsy suite asking what he was doing, and the investigator was just making sure that the man was really dead, which we know he isn't. So, obviously, Macy's not happy with this. This investigator is abusing a corpse while everybody else is actually doing their jobs. Before they start this autopsy, Jordan calls Macy over as she's finishing up AJ's autopsy. He had bruises that started to appear just as she was suturing him up. So this could be due to the way the blood is settling after death, which is known as liver mortis. Typically, fresh bruises won't show up randomly because after death, you need blood to make bruises. And what do we always say? Dead men don't bleed. Dead men don't bleed! Our favorite saying. However, if the blood settles a certain way after death, certain injuries 
that could have occurred at the time of death or near the time of death may become more visible. I have seen this in a case or two that I've worked. Sometimes the pathologist, depending on the case, will be like, hey, next morning just open up the body bag and see if there's any bruising there. I might suspect something. There was also a case I worked, so a lot of times these bruises show up hours after the initial autopsy is already done, and we only see the autopsy right then and there. We don't normally see the body, like, days after, so we don't see any of those injuries that may or may not be there, unless we are specifically looking for it, depending on the case. I had this one case where an initial autopsy was done, and then four or five days later, we went and did a second autopsy, and there were all of these bruises, like, bright purple, bluey bruises around the neck area, the shoulders, and that's just something that you wouldn't suspect, depending on the case that it was. It was, like, really bizarre. We weren't expecting all of that to show up because normally, again, like, we don't see the body a few days after we've already done the case. Like, the funeral home has it now and they're making final arrangements. I always think of, uh, I don't know if anybody listening has read the book, Working Stiff. That is a really good book. By Dr. Judy Melanick. And she discusses a case where a person either fell or was pushed down the stairs, I believe it was. I believe she received the body the day that it, that the person died. And she couldn't see any signs of like any violence or anything. And she was really struggling with whether or not to put the manner of death as homicide or accidental because she didn't know if it was a push or a fall. And she was talking to another pathologist about it. And they told her to wait a day and see if anything showed up the next day. And so she did. And then the next day she looked at the decedent's back and she saw like handprint shaped bruises on the person's back. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I hope I'm not misquoting. It's such a good book. I was actually trying to go back and find that case. But wow, like that's so bizarre that she actually found something and it was showing up the next day. Yes, I love that book. It's what I read that book when I was considering leaving my last job and going to grad school for forensic type stuff because I was like, let me see someone else's perspective who actually works in the field and see if I'm still interested. And I was like, yep, still interested. I'm gonna apply. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I have ever actually seen a case like that. I've never seen anything with like bruising the next day showing up, but it's crazy. So, in the show, these injuries must have happened right before death. They also found traces of leather on the attorney's hands, which was the same color as the jacket that AJ was wearing. So, the attorney grabbed AJ really hard, AJ took two shots, he went down, and all of the dead weight got too much for the attorney to handle, and he was literally using AJ as a human shield. So, AJ drops, leaving him exposed to the shots being fired. So it was the assistant who got shot first, then AJ, then the attorney. They know this because the traces of blood and tissue increase from left to right, indicating that the shooter was moving in that direction. So it seems to be that AJ, the criminal who just got off for rape and murder, was not the target. It was the defense attorney who was the real target. Macy and the investigator go to the attorney's law office to see if there were any threats made against him and who would have made those threats, and there's boxes and boxes of threats made against this defense attorney. They go back to the morgue with all this information, and the DNA from the shooter comes back. It is female, so their shooter is a woman. They look at the attorney's law partner first. She is the beneficiary of his life insurance, his business insurance, and she gets all his clients if he's dead. But they can't make any assumptions. They need hard evidence. So in the autopsy suite, the attorney overhears Jordan suturing up AJ and thinks how painful that is and 
internally in his head is begging that she doesn't do it to him. But she obviously can't hear him. He's their next autopsy for the day. So Jordan is looking at him on the autopsy table and has a little flashback to one time when this attorney was being a total gross creep, like pig towards her because he was coming on to her and she kept trying. She did like try to say like, no, thanks. Like, please, I'm not interested. And he wasn't listening. So she, as she should, hits him over the head with her keys and left a little scar above his eyebrow that is still there and she's looking at on the autopsy table. So she gets her scalpel ready and we're going to give a red flag here because it looks like she's using a disposable scalpel, which I've never actually used a disposable scalpel. In our morgue, we have stainless steel scalpel handles and we use 60 blades, which are like big and sharp. And the blade that she's looking looks like a 10 blade and this blade will get dull very easily and you just can't cut as much with this smaller blade i don't know how she's going to do a y incision at any evisceration with this little disposable scalpel so the only time that i've used disposable scalpels was when i was back working at the whole body donation center we were kind of in the midst of covid still and there were a lot of clients that were still weary about taking covid positive donors and there was one client and they worked uh, specifically on like ankle hardwares that they were developing so the only like type of tissue that we would take from covid positive donors would be basically a foot and so we would use disposable scalpels for only the covid positive donors or any infectious disease positive donor just so we could easily throw that scalpel and blade handle away and wouldn't have to worry about it. But they're really tiny blades that come on those disposable scalpels, and you do about three cuts, and then your blade's dull, and you can't do any more than that. Yeah, it's didn't seem very efficient. So, But anyway, she unsheaths the blade and looks at it and like puts her thumb over the blade to make sure it's sharp, I guess? Because, I mean, I don't know if people... I don't know if people do this with disposable blades, but can you imagine if we did that with, like, the sharp blades? No, because we're smart people, and we don't touch sharps like that. No! Like, I would just, like, cut up our thumbs on the daily if we did that. That's so bizarre to me. Especially right on the sharp side. Why are you poking the sharp? I didn't seem very safe. Like, why are you touching the blade at all? She needs some sharps safety training. She does. She does it. This is the second time we've seen her do bad things with a scalpel. First, she was holding it like a toddler, holding a crayon. Now she's just poking the sharp part. You shouldn't do any of that. So Jordan almost does the Y incision, but she can't quite bring herself to do it because she knew this guy and she puts it off a little longer. The slug reconstruction that they started doing, they realize that they're missing a piece. The missing fragment, they think, is inside the attorney's body. So it must have pierced him in the arm when he was using HA as a human shield. They need to cut into his arm to get this fragment out. So Jordan tells Macy, good luck with that, putting his autopsy into Macy's hands because she doesn't want to do it. Macy cuts into his arm and pulls out a bullet fragment with metal forceps. Again, a red flag. Never use metal when dealing with bullets. So the attorney's eyes start watering and he's tearing up and the incision that Macy made in the arm starts actively bleeding. And this shouldn't be happening because Macy and everyone else believes this man to be dead. And this is the second time we're saying it this episode, dead men don't bleed. So they finally realize that the attorney is not dead. Macy goes to feel for a pulse and then they get a histo slide to like stick under his nose to see if it creates fog from his breath. And it looks like he's still breathing. So they take him to the hospital to get treated and to figure out what is going on. So he is in total paralysis and his condition is deteriorating. 
this could be an absolute nightmare just for him in general, but also for the medical examiner's office because they're dead experts and they didn't realize that they had a living person on their autopsy table. That does not look good. But there was nothing to even indicate that he was alive. The MRIs from the attorney showed no spinal cord or brain injury. The neck wound that he had was superficial and the bullet passed through missing all major arteries. They're looking for a paralysis that mimics death. Maybe it's a toxin or some kind of exotic poison. So they didn't run tox screens on the attorney, so they don't have anything to go off of. But the hospital ran their tox and nothing came up. So all three victims had dinner at the same restaurant. So their stomach contents should or might look similar if they had any of the same dishes. So they looked through the stomach contents that they collected from AJ and the attorney's assistant, who were the first two autopsies for the day, and noticed that there is fugu in them. Fugu is a puffer fish, so it's likely that this attorney was poisoned by tetrodotoxin. The hospital needs to lavage with a 2% bicarb solution and do an intestinal decontamination. When puffer fish is improperly prepared, it can be the most dangerous dish in the world. They finally got a match on the reconstructed bullet, and it came from a gun that was used in a sniper case a long while back which the attorney was the defense attorney for. And he also likes to keep trophies from cases that he wins. And that gun just so happened to be in his office. So who else had access to his office? Only two people, the attorney himself and Dixie, the head secretary. So she's visiting the attorney in the hospital and we see her just walk over to him and literally try to smother him with a pillow. And then Macy walks into the room to speak with her, and she just tries to play it off cool. She wasn't even slick about it. The door was wide open when she was attempting to smother him. Oh my god, yeah, the door was wide open. It's like the middle of the day. People are just walking around the hospital, and she's like way too casual. So she tries to play it off cool, like she was just fluffing his pillows to make him more comfortable, and they go into the hallway. They're met by the other investigator on the case and two officers, and they confront her that they know what she did and that if they roll up their sleeves, they would probably find scrapes on her elbows from where she was leaning with the gun where they found blood and skin with Blue Star earlier. Dixie says she did everyone a favor and that everyone was happy the attorney was shot, and no one was crying over AJ being killed either since he was the spawn of Satan. And the assistant wasn't any better. Dixie had been carrying the defense attorney for years. She's the reason he won every case. She came up with a strategy that got AJ acquitted, and the attorney started bragging about it like it was his idea the whole time. And then he invited the assistant, a.k.a. the, quote, blonde piece of fluff, to the celebration without giving Dixie so much as a thank you. So why didn't she just quit if she hated working for him so much? Like, it's such an extreme reaction to go right to shooting. The attorney used to be a prosecutor before he switched to criminal defense attorneys, and he did all this, we find out, to piss off Macy because of a case that they were working on together years ago that didn't go his way. The attorney discharged himself at the hospital, and Macy drops by as he's doing this. And Macy starts talking about how in the 1800s, coffins came equipped with a bell attached to a string in case someone was buried alive, and how the attorney came very close to needing one of those bells, and he even has like a little bell that he hands to him. It's true. We actually have an episode about that. We have, so go back and listen. So AJ and the assistant died before the pufferfish toxin metabolized in their system, and the attorney's wound wasn't fatal, so the poison was in his system long enough to shut down his body. So the attorney plans on suing Macy, the morgue, the EMTs, and the restaurant. And this is just so petty. Dixie, the woman who tried to murder him, hired him as her criminal defense attorney. So who's going to convict her? When her victim is now her lawyer. Yeah, that is next level petty. Like, that's (laughs) the level of petty that this man is. Next level petty. 
The attorney walks out of the hospital and is going to cross the street to his car when he gets run over by an ambulance. And the last shot, we see he's actually dead now and in a body bag with everyone in the morgue looking over him. What an ending. I just, the end of this episode, I thought it was all going to be in Maisie's head that he's picturing this guy getting hit by an ambulance and that's what he wants. And then like right. cut scene, we see the attorney getting into the car. But no, you had, they had us believe this entire episode that this guy is dead he's gonna get an autopsy and then no he's actually alive but then just kidding we're, we're gonna kill him off anyway yeah we were talking about it the other day and you said you thought it was gonna be like mean girls when regina george gets hit by the bus and that's how the defense attorney died just kidding no totally kidding but she was hurt <laughs> that would have been crazy we have two crazy true events to discuss with you guys that correspond with the events that this show portrayed. So the first is involving illegal pufferfish meat being sold in Thailand. In 2007, vendors in Thailand were discovered to have been selling the meat of the deadly pufferfish disguised as salmon, which resulted in the death of over 15 people over a three-year span. I really, I just need to know how were these people mixing up salmon and pufferfish because in my mind i mean i don't buy fish but i feel like they aren't the same i was thinking that too like it's not i at least from what i read i don't think these people were trying to buy pufferfish i think th i thought they were trying to buy salmon unless these people were trying to buy pufferfish and they were like oh we have to disguise it as salmon because it's illegal to sell i have no idea i don't eat fish so i <laughs> I have no idea. And even when I did eat fish, I really only ate salmon, but I've obviously never tried pufferfish. So pufferfish had been banned in 2002, but had continued to be sold in large quantities at local markets and restaurants. Some sellers even went as far as dyeing the meat of the pufferfish to make it look more like salmon. Obviously, salmon's pink, and I'm assuming that pufferfish is not. That's how these people were getting away with it. This resulted in 15 deaths and around 115 hospitalizations over a three-year period. The ovaries, liver, and intestines of pufferfish contain tetrodotoxin, which is a potent poison. The U.S. FDA has even stated that tetrodotoxin can result in rapid and violent death. Eating pufferfish can result in paralysis, vomiting, heart failure, and, of course, death. We got this information from an NBC article titled Pufferfish Sold as Salmon Kills 15 Sickens 115, which will be linked in our show notes. The second true crime that we found involves the topic that has been discussed on this podcast before in our very first episode, so go check that out. This story is about a man who was thought to be dead, and he was even declared dead by not one, not two, but three doctors. I'm also trying to rack my head around the fact that three people declared this man dead and he was not dead. So this is all nightmare fuel. This is nightmare fuel for me because I, mm -mm, I'm terrified of this happening. In 2018, a man who was an inmate in the Asturias region of Spain named Gonzalez Montoya Jimenez was declared dead by three different doctors. He apparently regained consciousness in the morgue just hours before his autopsy was to be performed. His family stated that he had markings drawn on him where the doctors planned to open him up at autopsy. So just an FYI for everybody out there who doesn't work in a morgue, at least this is how it's done in our morgue, and I'm sure many other morgues. We don't actually draw markings on the decedent before we do the exam. Again, I don't know how they do it internationally. That might be different. 
But from our experience, we don't actually draw the Y on the person and then cut down. We just simply cut. And the only time, like, I've had experience with drawing markings on decedents was when I was working at my old job at the Whole Body Donation Center. We would do markings on the decedent because we were basically dismembering them for science, and that's what they donated their bodies for. So we would draw markings on, like, their legs or their arms or their torso and clearly define we are taking this part, this part, this part, and we would draw little X's on the parts that were going to be cremated and sent back to the families. So like, for example, we also had little rhymes to remember all of like the code names that we would use for the tissue parts that we would take. Like a Lego 3 is a knee, a Lego 4 goes to the floor. So a Lego 3 is from mid-femur to mid-tib and fib, and a Lego 4 was mid-tib, fib to toe-tip. Wait, for everybody at home, please explain what mid-tib, fib is. Because I know, but I just love that it it rhymes. For those who don't know what mid-tib, fib is, that is basically just the middle of your tibia and your fibia, which is your shin bone, basically. So like the middle of your shin. So that's the only time I've had experience drawing on decedents before cutting, but in the morgue, we don't do that. So luckily, before his autopsy was to be performed, Jimenez was found alive and was quickly taken to the hospital. It is believed that Jimenez had a rare condition called catalepsy, and this condition is characterized by inactivity, decreased responsiveness to stimuli, and a tendency to maintain an immobile posture, according to the National Center for Biotechnology Information. People with this condition can have their vital signs drop so low that they're barely detectable, A person's limbs can even remain so rigidly in place that it can be mistaken for rigor mortis. That's crazy, because rigor mortis, especially when, like, someone's in full rigor, that is insanely rigid and so hard to move any limbs or, like, break the rigor, and it's it's insane. Catalepsy can sometimes be a symptom of epilepsy, which Jimenez was known to have, and... Due to him being in prison, it was thought that he may have been missing his epilepsy medication, therefore resulting in catalepsy. After Jimenez awoke, doctors said that although his brain had been deprived of oxygen for some time, he was able to remember things and communicate, which were all promising signs, and that's pretty amazing. That's ins- that's a miracle. Like, that's insane. And we got all of this information from a Business Insider article by Lindsay Dodgson, which will also be linked in our show notes. So... Let's see. I know we have an episode called The Worst Way to Die, which was all about being buried alive and being in small spaces, which was my worst fear. But now I think the worst way would be, thankfully that didn't happen in this case, but if somebody thought you were dead and performed an autopsy. Instead of Inside the Morgue, this podcast should be called Inside Your Worst Nightmare. After watching this, I also am now really in my head and thinking about every single case I've ever worked on and if the person was alive or not and... I was like, I can't do that to myself thinking about it. No, we can't. We can't go down that rabbit hole. Nobody was bleeding. Dead men don't bleed. I I think of, there was, I think we looked up this movie the last time we did an episode about someone who was thought to be dead but wasn't. Um, I think it's called Awake, and it's about a man who goes in for surgery and they think he's under, it's, I think it's Hayden Christensen, aka Anakin Skywalker for any Star Wars fans out there. I think he stars in it and he's going in for surgery and they like put him under, but he's, he can't move or speak, but he's fully awake and can feel. And I haven't, I will not go near that movie. I love horror, horror movies, but I, no. That's like next level psychological horror. And I really hate when horror movies 
movies are just a little too real. Yeah, usually even psychological horror I can get down with, but not that is a new a new fear of mine. And I remember I got my wisdom teeth out kind of late. I was 26 when I got my wisdom teeth out. And I remember like, of course, right before I go in for the procedure, they were going to put me under. And I was like, hey, I remember that movie. I like, of course, was like thinking about the movie. I'm like, what if I'm awake when they take my teeth out? And I wasn't, thankfully. But (laughs) I, of course, had to think about that right before being put under. So to wrap this episode up, we tallied a total of four green flags and seven red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Crossing Jordan did not pass in terms of forensic accuracy. If you enjoy our podcast and if you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod, so feel free to follow us and DM us with any questions. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.